Hello, Kachimbonas. I'm very excited to bring you this great interview with friend of the podcast and fellow woman of color lawyer and Stanford law grad, Magna Sridhar. And we discussed the very troubling federal executions that SCOTUS has allowed to move forward. And we also discuss the movement of farmers who are protesting in India. And this is a very significant protest movement. The number of strikers alone should inspire all of us. Just about 3% of the world population is striking right now. And these farmers deserve policies that allow them to have to not only have a living wage, but a thriving wage. In 2019, there were many, many farmers who committed suicide because of the natural disasters that ruined a lot of crops in India and also the failure of the government to intervene. And now with the government proposing these new regulations that would actually ironically deregulate the agriculture industry in India and um, basically take take the government out of the position of subsidizing when natural disasters happen. And this is kind of actually a quintessential government function that has that is a type of quote unquote welfare that even the most quote-unquote bootstrap countries like the U.S. engage in because as humans we understand that we can't control the weather and that there are times where the weather has an unexpected effect on crops and the government's kind of there to respond to these systemic issues and um, use their mechanisms, whether that be subsidizing, whether that be... Um, whether that be controlling prices, um, regulating the market as the middleman to make sure that these large agricultural industries aren't manipulating the market too much. And, you know, as an anarchist, it is difficult to come to terms or to understand which functions of government are worth saving or worth preserving but I think that the farmers of India are showing us how in transnational global capitalism there does need to be regulation lest we have the situation that we have in India now where farmers are truly suffering. And was really honored to have a friend of the podcast, Magna Sridhar, who is from India, to really break this down for us because this, these are complicated policies. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can become a Patreon for 5 or $10 a month. $10 patrons get new exclusive interviews every week and $5 patrons get them every two weeks. If you are a bit strapped for money, which I think we all are these days, you can also support non-monetarily by leaving an Apple podcast review or review wherever you listen to 
the podcast and just explaining why you love the podcast. I really appreciate the most recent review from Sai who called the podcast a community archive and who noted the importance of the podcast as an archive of the fierce feminist queer organizing and resistance that's happening in the southern Arizona borderlands and provides a space for the folks leading this effort to reflect on their work and just make it better for the future. Really loved that review and would love to hear more about why you all continue listening to the podcast. You can also follow Radio Cachimbona on Instagram and Twitter, and you can like Radio Cachimbona on Facebook. I bring the conversations from the episodes onto those platforms so that we can continue discussing these really important matters. All right. Well, I hope you all enjoy this episode and happy holidays. I'm so excited to have Megna back on the podcast today. We're going to be talking about SCOTUS, the death penalty, and the very large farmer protests slash uprisings that have been going on in India. But before we get more into that, Megna, I just wanted to ask how you are and what you've done this week for self-care. I'm feeling better, actually. Um, I had a window... Uh, where it was possible to go back to India for a while because I haven't been uh, since the beginning of the year and I probably won't go again till the pandemic is over. Um, so we found like a safe little mm. window to go. I know that, you know, traveling during the pandemic in the US is like, and the world is like, is is a big thing. I mean, I think the situation's less dire outside of the United States, but I still know it's like morally quite, um, yeah. quite a dilemma. Um but um, but yeah, thankfully it, it went off safely. Took all the precautions and uh, and got to see for my family for a bit. So that was that was really lovely. Um, and I came back, and since then I've just been working really. It's my punishment for going away. So that's sort of that mm. is uh, that's all I've been doing. Um, but this is a form of self care. I'm talking to you about things I'm passionate about, and I'm making yes. whiskey with apple and vanilla. I don't know how that's going to come out. Oh, mm-hmm. wait, apple, like apple zest or like how no, are you? Um, just apple juice. Oh, apple juice. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I hope it turns out well. I so too. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm on a different vibe. I just had my breakfast burrito. <laughs> <laughs> time zones. You should end yes, your favorite. You should end your day with um, whiskey and apple as well. I did just taste it. It's really good. I'm just waiting for it to warm up. Oh, my God. That sounds lovely, actually. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, actually, Joseph is very into whiskey, so I've become more of a whiskey aficionado now because of him. I know nothing about whiskey, but I got Jack Daniels just because that's what everyone seems to talk about. I don't know anything about Jack Daniels. It's like good, bad, middle. I don't, I don't know, but that's just I got Tennessee honey as well. So I feel very oh, yes. American. I've had that before. <laughs> it's, it's really sweet. It's great. Yeah.
I figured I could follow the Americans when it came to whiskey. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, um, how about you? How are you doing? Oh, sorry. Oh, on. no, no. Yeah, me. Um, I am also okay. I've been sleeping a lot this past these past few days yeah um yeah and I actually just I don't really feel guilty about it anymore you know because Mm -hmm, I love that yeah um (laughs) just because you know having depression your your energy levels fluctuate and it doesn't always make sense and it doesn't always align with like what you want your productivity levels to be but this is just life and like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna live my life um chastising myself because I take naps (laughs) yes yes I love that I love that that is amazing um I think that's such a healthy impulse to follow yeah and then for self-care uh I've been meditating oh that's really lovely Yes, yes. I try and keep that a consistent practice. Um, but I really relate to you saying that now you just have hella work to do after your vacation. <laughs> My uh, <laughs> colleague of mine said that in litigation, there's no vacation that goes unpunished. Yeah. And, and I know you don't do litigation, but I assume that it's similar in transactional yeah, work. Exactly. Yeah, just as a lawyer. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. It, it's horrendous. Um, <laughs> I just look at people with normal jobs and I'm like, wow, that's a different life. That is a better life. That's the, you know, even the 40 hour work week is like a capitalist construct. That's not, you know, it's meant for two people, not one. Like the whole, right, um, right, you, right. Yeah, right. That you need a wife at home in order to like actually sustain it. But we don't even yeah. work 40. Like the 40 hour work week looks like a dream. Like to end at five every day. That sounds amazing. Oh, Meg, I feel like you're really going through it because you're at a corporate firm, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the thing with nonprofits is that it's kind of different with every other Mm -hmm. work setting where it, like, everybody has to act like they're so thrilled to be there and, like, they're fulfilling their life's passion in doing the work. Um, Whereas, like, at other work settings, you know, you can be like, oh, thank God, it's Friday. (laughs) Yeah. I know, I know. It's, yeah, yeah it, but we have way more reasonable hours than you do, though. Yeah, but still, and and I think it's a bit the American mindset as well, honestly, because I think in other places you are a bit like, yeah, I'm gonna switch off, even if I work for this big noble cause. My weekends are mine, my evenings are mine. You know, all of that. Whereas I think the American work ethic is sort of like, oh yeah, I work through sick days. I work through like I'm not taking yes. a single vacation <laughs> for five years. Like, what? Yes, exactly. It's so toxic. Yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's horrendous. Um, but I'm glad you're yeah. actively fighting Yes, that. I just that can't tell really any of my coworkers about it. I just have to act like I'm I'm doing what they're doing. <laughs> which I think is what they do too, which is so frustrating. You hope they don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. Actually, they really do listen to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> gets tired of work it's just it's just true of everything I mean doctors like save lives all the time and they get tired of their jobs I'm sure I don't know well I get I get worried thinking about residents and what they have to go through like I've never been in a situation where I was receiving care I don't think from somebody who identified as a resident but I would be really scared they they like don't sleep as part of their routine (laughs) yeah I know, I know, I know. It's absolutely insane. My my mom's a doctor and uh, she had me as a young child when she was like doing her residency. So I don't know how. Oh my uh, God, your mom's a superhero. 
Yeah, I know. I know. Also, like, apologies to all the people whose eyes I fucked up by existing and, like, <laughs> all night. Well, like, keeping her up all I, I mean, I don't know. I hope nothing bad happened to anybody and I hope she was awake for everything she did. But if anything happened, it would be my fault for staying, for, for keeping her up all night, probably. I think we should blame the labor system and not you. Yeah, yeah that's, that's probably better. Yeah. I will not live with that guilt. All right. So I wanted to start off talking about mm-hmm. SCOTA stuff just really quickly about mm-hmm. the the election related, <laughs> the various election related lawsuits that Trump's team has filed, which all have been very ludicrous. Yeah. Well, okay, so I'll, I'll yep. just start. So Pennsylvania Republicans filed an emergency appeal to SCOTUS requesting that they invalidate the state's election results. Then SCOTUS rejected the appeal within an hour of it being submitted, which is the right call. <laughs> and this was actually the first time that SCOTUS weighed in on the barrage of election-related results because, like I said, they're, they're, the lawsuits that they've put forward have been so messy. <laughs> unclear remedies be but like it's unclear what remedy they're asking for the facts don't support the claims that they're trying to make also just really really bad typos like i know yes, I, i'm really I not yes like i'm really not somebody that is a stickler for grammar you know i do think that these are colonial mm-hmm. tools but i mean come on that's just that's just white male mediocrity like if i misspelled district yeah. court on the first page of a motion like i i, I don't i don't i don't even know what would happen i feel like i would self combust <laughs> like that i know I know. I I saw that and I was just like, well, you wouldn't dare to submit that for your first year class you would in think. law school. Like in your first draft. Like you couldn't even do it in your first draft that you're informally submitting. You just, yeah, it's, it's, abs- and, and I wonder like, what was the, what, what was the reason for it? Yeah. You know, apart from obviously all the claims being unscrupulous, you know, the team being unscrupulous. It's just like, is it, that you don't even think it's worth putting your best shot? Is it that you have no faith in what you're doing as you as you should, like have no faith in what you're doing? And so you don't even want to put the effort in? Like where is that level? Or is it the arrogance of assuming that it will work in your favor even if you present such sloppy work? Like surely it can't be the last one, can it? <laughs> well, apparently most people on his legal team understand that they're doing frivolous things, but mm-hmm. so- someone was quoted as saying something like, well, I mean, we're like the lawsuits aren't going to win anyway. And so why not just do what Trump wants to do and then curry favor with him after he leaves? It seems like the lawyers that are doing this know that they're doing absurd things, mm-hmm. but are just trying to curry favor with Trump. That's that's another bizarre thing. I mean, I guess there's an open question of but it's people are cl- you know people are just uh, climbing for power. Yeah, and Trump isn't going to go away. Yeah. Um, after he leaves the presidency, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and I think that there's you know people are trying to not get left behind. Yep. Uh, when Trump leaves, yeah. <laughs> no, I get that, but then I guess the thing I'm confused about is like. I guess it's just a question of how politically useful he'll be. Because I I think Trumpism isn't going away. I think they could find, I mean, I don't know how useful Donald Trump, the man himself, is going to be versus like a horrible, you know, eviler version of him that comes up. 
uh, in the future. So Donald Trump Jr. Yeah, yeah, yeah actually, maybe, maybe they, maybe they think it's going to be in the family, so they might as well like keep sucking up to him. Who knows? I, so, you know how in Pro we learned that post Twombly and Iqbal, the courts have actually become a lot less plaintiff-friendly? Mm-hmm. I, I had trouble squaring that with how these cases were able to move forward. That's a good point. I don't know why the pleading standard is lowered for them. I haven't, I mean, I have to admit, I haven't looked at them too closely because they just seemed so frivolous as issues. It seemed hard to dedicate time to them, but I assume because they were of some sort of political urgency, they bypass difficult pleading standards. That that would be Mm. my assumption. And so you wouldn't have to, because the pleading standards especially seem to affect private plaintiffs more. And, and especially yeah. in the context of like private plaintiffs versus yeah. like an unknowable conspiracy or like a, an entity with asymmetrical information, you know, versus, versus this, right, is right, not right, right. even if they want to paint it as that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That, that was what Twombly, I believe was about. It was like a mm-hmm. corporation who um, another corporation believed was engaging in, Oh, I don't even know. Some, some like illegal business practice. <laughs> Monopoly, I think. Uh, and, and Monopoly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort yes. of stuff. Yeah. Yes. But they couldn't, it was like they needed discovery to move forward to prove yeah. it. They, they yeah. could only, they, it's like they had a suspicion that they, they had proof of parallel conduct, but they didn't have proof of whatever it was like monopoly or whatever it was yeah and because and they couldn't get proof until they get discovery but they can't get discovery until they get like it's just this whole uh catch-22 situation i mean i will say with Um, this i think that they were able to move past the pleadings because they i mean they had people willing to to write affidavits about the you know like poll workers who (laughs) wrote affidavits and I mean, and the, the stuff in the affidavits was like really absurd. Like, that's true. That's true. I think the cases still could have gotten dismissed, I would, but I understand why. Probably to better assure people that there is some semblance of democracy during a time where a lot of people, like more than usual, are wondering <laughs> if this is actually a legitimate democracy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there were. And the, <laughs> did you see the the viral videos of uh, there was like there was one woman who was brought before Congress to give testimony, and she <laughs> she <laughs> she she was so absurd. <laughs> oh my god! And like yeah. she she's like a truther. Like she she's like a the perfect is, example is. of of Trump's supporters who are post fact and post truth and will believe anything that Trump has told them to say. Like she really, she kept the words she was, the the claims she was making did not make any sense, but she was stick. She was sticking to them. She was like, yes, I like, look, look at the poll books. There's massive widespread fraud. Look at the poll books. (laughs) And they would be like, no, what are you talking about? (laughs) And then he's like, I complained to my supervisor. He was in on it too. (laughs) Like as opposed to, I, I could see they were all in on it. Uh, it just, it made me really depressed to see that though, because I think I've, I've just been doing some reading out of interest in general about why people follow conspiracy theories, how they get suckered into them, why they're particularly hard to uh, disprove and things like that. And it, it just, when I was listening to her, it just, like, how 
do you convince someone right. who's a Trump supporter who's listening to her that that what she's saying is like right. absolute rubbish the position's so predetermined like if you're saying anything against what she's saying then you're just coming from a, you're just part of the right. conspiracy <laughs> and so you have no like independent information and just it's i can just see yeah i i can just see how they thought that would be an effective witness because yeah. whoever wants to hear her bullshit for truth can uh, do that yeah i i've been reading this law professor's book Merge Left and he talks about the Trump phenomenon and mm-hmm. he he mentions that what Trump has done and his supporters have done is that they've like shifted the window of acceptable discourse and they've also like shifted the window in terms of like what we accept as reality mm-hmm. and i think that this is a perfect example yeah. of it cuz it's even even though these claims are absurd here we are still explaining and debunking why they're not true <laughs> yeah yeah that's true we have to be sucked into mm-hmm. the game and like once you're there you're already sort of there exactly yeah then then it just becomes an argument between two equals instead of stepping back and saying wait why are we talking about this in the first place exactly and that's that's been the issue with how American media has portrayed Trump from the very beginning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is that they they were like Hillary Clinton said this and then Trump said this and it's like no <laughs> like, yeah. what Hillary Clinton you said was based that. in fact and like what he said was totally yeah. fucking bonkers like Obama was definitely born here <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's so disingenuous how like the liberal media does this like yeah. i remember the bbc is doing it i mean bbc is completely like gone now but really? even when it was a, oh my god that's yeah, so no, bad because i'm like oh the bbc oh, coverage is what i where I go to read about american news sometimes oh no <laughs> yeah, because i've totally so given bad. up on the new york times and the washington post yeah that's that's fair and maybe the bbc is more even honestly on american news but over here they're just they're just so bad i i remember like listening to them and just being like why are you entertaining this lie like why are you treating it as if it is a debatable fact like you're a journalist you're a journalistic organization right. it's mm-hmm. it's such a breach of journalistic ethics um yeah no they're super bad they've gone um, the new head of the BBC is like a hand picked like conservative and one of the things he just did was um mm-hmm. they later clarified they didn't do it but they really kind of meant to do ban all BBC employees from attending pride and any other events yeah that are political because they said you know oh we're very strictly impartial you're not supposed to they actually said in an internal memo you're not supposed to virtue signal and they're like no matter how noble your cause is you uh, can't like you can't support <laughs> it publicly what? yeah exactly like it was just like oh wow so you can't support like you can't now, then later they're like no no you can go to pride just don't participate in any political aspects of pride which is a whole other kind of worms but like also i mean it's that kind of stuff yeah i mean it's like a pride isn't even yeah. political anymore it's like a whole corporate thing now <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> although you know what they mean by like don't participate in anything political in the uk is just like don't do anything that supports trans people oh um, wow because in the uk you're not supposed to that that's politically controversial apparently in the uk I know everyone everyone's been watching JK Rowling's fall from the millennial pedestal. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And she's like, she pissed me off so much. It's like, why are you ruining my childhood? What is wrong with just stop? I didn't need to know this, that you're transphobic. So like, aggressively fuck. transphobic as well. It's like, all right. Aggressively. Um, I mean, but it's every British middle-aged woman, honestly. I mean, I, I assume people are transphobic Ugh. here. Um, unless yeah. they've proven otherwise. She just has the yeah, platform. Yeah, exactly. They reflect yeah. every, yeah. But yeah, no, BBC, super Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to transition now Mm -hmm. to talking about another heavy subject, which is the federal death penalty and the executions that the Trump administration has engaged in. In late November, the justices allowed the Trump administration to execute the eighth person through, through the federal death penalty since they resumed the practice in July. Last night, there was another execution of... Brandon Bernard. His name is Brandon Bernard. Okay. Yes, Brandon Bernard. And he plans to carry out at least one more execution over the coming weeks before Biden takes office. Does the timing of Trump's reinitiating the death penalty on the eve of the elections and now during his lame duck presidency strike you? Yeah. I mean, it's... I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised at everything pointlessly cruel and unspeakable this administration does, but it does seem especially pointless. I don't know if it was an election ploy before the election to sort of get popular support, because I can't think of, or if it was just some, I mean, I know he's a massive supporter of the death penalty, and I know, you know, it's it's extremely in line mm-hmm. with his politics, what he said before, what he said about the Central Park Five. It, it, it's very in line with who he is, mm-hmm. but to push it forward so aggressively and and so, like, in such a rush, both right before an election, which he lost anyway, and then after an election where there's absolutely no purpose, I mean, I... I like I said, I know I should be used to the unspeakable pointless cruelty at this point, but it's still hard to wrap your head around this. Yeah, I mean the death penalty is it's one of the it is it's violent because Actually, it's okay. This is very ironic because in the American criminal legal system, there's different levels of punitiveness of guilt that's ascribed to an individual depending on whether or not the death was premeditated like if you erupt in anger over something Mm -hmm. and then in that moment of anger decide to kill someone the american legal system says that's different than somebody who for days bought the ski mask and the guns or whatever and what is more premeditated than the death penalty and it's just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that is such a good way of thinking about it i've i've heard brian stevenson describe or i've read him describe the executions that he's been present for in his book just mercy and he, what struck me was he talked about how right when you get to the moment where you actually have to inject the individual or whatever the method of death is going to be nobody felt good in that it, it like he he didn't say you know nobody stopped it from happening but yeah. he he said there was a sense that everybody felt really uncomfortable with what was going to happen and i think that there's so many vindictive americans who are pro death penalty but have never have never been in a in that situation and probably have never even stepped into a prison and 
it's it's so it's it's so unthinkably cruel to think that you would restart executing people as a last minute ploy to get more votes in the election. Like one that you would think of that strategy, but then also too, that that speaks, you know, that, I mean, that, that they thought that it speaks to people. I mean, obviously it does speak to people because the death penalty is, is occurring in the U S. And so there's obviously a contingent of people that think it should continue. I think it's still, there's still more people in support of it in the U.S., according to the last poll they did on it, even though it, it decreases, I think, and it's been decreasing fairly steadily for the past decade or so. But it's still, I think, more for than against, which is, yeah, which is barbaric. Like you said, I, I don't know, I don't understand if these people could sit in an execution room, watch that happen, and then feel like the right thing happened. Right. Yeah, and I think that should be the test because I think people, it's just, it's so convenient to be sitting in your home thinking that the death, I don't know. Oh, what, what are these people thinking? I just, I, the, I, yeah. The, the thing that, that really worries me, though, is that because I was watching the statements of the victims' families. Oh, I was about I was about to bring that up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, in in the Brandon Bernard case, and then both the representatives from the victims' families sort of see. I mean, they they seem to think that they had got closure out of yeah. what had happened, and they were like yeah. moved, but not in a not in a way that you're moved after something horribly bad happens. It's like they were moved after something important happened. And I just, I don't understand that either. And like that sort of, yeah, I I don't get that. And how many people are like that? Like, what is the, is that the usual response? And what does that say about people? And yeah, I I don't, I think that's like an, an extra step because what if there are people who are in a death chamber and they think, yeah, the right thing happened? Right. Right. I know, because so far I've only contemplated or thought, known about people who were there and were deeply uncomfortable with it. But the vic- the statements from the victims' families were exactly like you said. They they were, I mean, kind of like a, like a pro-death penalty statement, just saying, you know, thank yeah. you. They thank the Trump administration for giving their family closure. Yeah. And and then what, the other letter was, was God, this is so, so white. It was like, now we know. Now, now we know that actions have consequences. It's like, I know. I know. Uh, what is what? Why was death the consequence that you wanted for your quote unquote closure? And right? I, I was moved by because so they had pre, they had pre planned those statements, but then. When they actually read them aloud, the mother of one of them started crying when she when she she like went off script and and started crying, talking about how his last words were remorse. And yeah. it's like right, it's like that's yep, what you're yep. more moved by than the death. It right? It's like that you yeah. <laughs> you yeah. want the person. I think that's a huge part of of accountability processes is having the perpetrator of harm both admit to the harm and then also say that they're sorry, that they wish that they had done differently, that moving forward, they would not do that again. And I guess I found it a little disappointing that she was most emotionally moved by his remorse, but still ended up being like, yeah, that was sad, but this is the right thing. Right. 
I mean, I... It, it just makes me think of an alternative world where, like, forget the death penalty. Also, we didn't have a horrible incarceration system. And then she could actually, there was a mm-hmm, way where she could mm-hmm. hear that apology and engage with it. And then they could both come out of it as, like, better people. Right. And and in a better place like that. Yeah, that's what she was looking for. It was the apology, like you said. And, and that was something that he had clearly reached a place where he was ready to do that. Everybody who knows him sort of speaks about mm-hmm. how much how much anguish he had over what he had done and how much he had developed in prison yeah. and what a loving father he was and how much he tried to give back. Oh, you know? God. It was, it's, Ugh, it was exactly what you want. Even in a fucked up criminal justice system, he did exactly what you want somebody to do like right when the system is not designed to do that when you i saw an interview with him and he he had amazing self-discipline that allowed him to not go to not deteriorate on death row which is what happens to a lot of folks because yeah you're alone by yourself in a cell for 23 hours a day so he talked about how he didn't lose this he didn't come to have total despair by telling himself that even in the situation, he could improve himself. What? The strength of that character. And, oh, God. It's just, it's yeah, revolting it's that in- we executed him. No, it's just revolting that we executed him. He And he, he was so young, too. He, he, w- he was four, in his 40s because he'd committed the yeah. crime when he was, like, 17. Yep. 80s. Just- yeah. That's horrific. And and he had spent his whole he had spent more years in on death row than outside of prison. Right. And and you think about the environment that he was in as well. Like I find mildly toxic environments like difficult to handle. I mean, this is an environment. This is an <laughs> right. environment not not <laughs> only like all the cruelties that come with prison system, but also every single person on death row comes from. I don't think there's a single person on death row mm-hmm. who doesn't come from a background of like poverty and abuse. And it, yeah, not even just poverty, like very extensive trauma too. Yeah, yeah. So you read like case after case after case, all the mitigating evidence in every one of these cases is like a very mm-hmm. similar horrifying story of trauma and abuse and neglect. And so you're in an environment with everybody who's had like the worst possible circumstances to grow up with and like the worst possible future to look, to look forward to and you know and, and he's not only the, the only one on death row who people have seen have you know stayed hopeful and made tremendous strides and it's an impossibly high standard and you still have people there who've cleared it yeah yeah, he was he was leading crocheting groups oh on gosh. death row. Oh like he was bring, he was bringing life and hope to this place that like you said is really hard to be in. So I wanted to discuss Orlando Hall who was the eighth person to be executed by the Trump administration and I wanted to talk about this because it raised the question of whether or not it's possible to execute someone in a humane way. So the the in Orlando Hall's mm-hmm. case, 
the district court had stayed his execution. And the reason for the stay is that the the method of execution, the judge claimed violated the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act because they were administering it without prescription from a doctor. And the court believed that the public should have confidence that the death Mm -hmm. penalty is being executed in humane ways, quote unquote. So, Megna, do you think it's possible to execute someone in a humane way? I don't think so. I mean, yeah, you're... (laughs) It's so hard to conceive of a humane way. I know. It's like, I appreciate the judge for staying the execution, but it's also like, girl, what is a humane execution? (laughs) (laughs) What is a humane way? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, honestly, that might be one of the ways in which these cases kind of get twisted up. I think there have been so many challenges in the lethal injection being sort of cruel and unusual because it is, yeah. not just because it's an execution, but because, it, because you know, for multiple reasons. There's the reason of it being the administration of a prescription drug without a doctor's prescription. You know, it goes against mm-hmm. the Hippocratic Oath of a doctor uh, to do right. a medical procedure that is exactly the opposite of what they vowed to do. These drugs are often illegally sourced because a lot of, like Pfizer doesn't sell execution drugs to the United States because of its European connections and how, um, you know, it's not humane. And so a lot of these, you know, th- there's um, a lot of shady stuff about the way Department of Corrections source their death penalty drugs. Like, it's it's actually insane. They have, um, oh so God. almost almost every state that does shady things has a statute of secrecy in place so you can't even FOIA the sources of their of their death penalty what yeah it's insane Arizona a few years ago went on an execution spree literally because oh god Arizona yeah oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah um they went on an execution spree because their drugs were expiring and I, I don't I don't know <gasps> oh execution spree should never be said that should never <laughs> that should have said that should be contemplated <laughs> yeah I know just the words the words and because their drugs were expiring and I honestly don't know if they're still using the same expired drugs because sourcing these drugs are quite hard because even though they're commonly available drugs they're still hard to source for the purpose of ex- execution because there's so many ethical conundrums around them and there's so many international drug companies that manufacture them that aren't comfortable selling them for those purposes so yeah they could be they could be obtained from shady sources they could be expired they can be like manufactured I, I think um reprieve uh, did an investigation many years ago about like one of the state department of corrections sourcing drugs from like the back of a, someone's truck in india like that is how <laughs> desperate they got to source these execution drugs and so like so it's unspeakably wow. cool because like yeah just just you're injecting something someone with something that's really dangerous and you don't even know how many sound how, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and a few states, I think, don't even require a doctor to be present during the proceedings. Like, they require a medical professional, I think, but not a doctor necessarily. So it's like, it's deeply messed up how how the death how the lethal injection plays out in practice. But despite all of those reasons, I think I don't think there's a single successful lawsuit that hasn't eventually been overturned on the lethal injection in and of itself being cruel and unusual. Even though it's it's it's, it's clearly like That is absurd. <laughs> yeah, it's completely unusual. It is both cruel and unusual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's quite unusual to be honest that yeah. drug companies are willing to forego a profit for something that 
that eats away at their conscience. Like, when does that happen? Okay, they're making like rocket pricing insulin. <laughs> I think it's because they don't actually, the drugs are quite cheap. So they don't actually, and like use them that often. And so the loss to their profits actually really marginal. Because you're right, like mm. I don't think they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. I think it's actually like okay. cost that benefit one. analysis. That makes sense. Okay. Because <laughs> I don't. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's no goodness in their heart. If they could like sell it for like a million bucks, and, like yeah, they they probably would do it. But I think it's just more of a cost benefit analysis. But yeah, no, the, the the lethal injection. I mean, the lethal injection is so cruel. So some states are actually contemplating because they know how fucked up and unpopular the lethal injection is becoming. They might bring back gas chambers. What? Yeah, yeah. So who, who the fuck is like sitting in their office contemplating this? Hmm. Right? Lethal injection? No. You know what we should really bring back from the Holocaust days? The gas, the gas chambers. Right? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking it's, about? <laughs> it's actually, it's actually insane. It's called nitrogen hypoxia, and it's been. <gasps> Going around for a while. Has that been used? I don't think it's been used anywhere yet. I think, oh, no, wait, oh, I just God. saw uh, Oklahoma, I think, plans <laughs> to start using it. I don't know if they're, I don't know if they got around to it. I think mm-hmm. a few states have tried to at least get it on their book, including Oklahoma. Yeah, it's, I mean, in, in quote unquote <laughs> fairness, it's supposed to be less painful than the lethal injection. It's kind of crazy that like, because the whole, I think the whole cost benefit of the gas chamber is that they're saying, you know, it's less painful and less likely to get messed up than the lethal injection, but it just has Holocaust connotations. And so we can't do it. But if it was, wasn't for the Holocaust connotations, we'd be all in because it's getting harder and harder for us to get death penalty drugs. So yeah, it's... Wait, is the death really painless in the gas chamber? It's supposed to be. They're they're saying that it's you breathe in like an inert gas. This is so dark. I know, it's such a dark conversation. And it's so hard to... It's a very like ethically difficult one to have as well because you just don't want the death penalty under all circumstances. And then once you start talking about what is the most humane way to execute, it's like, yeah, it becomes an incredibly dark conversation. Yeah, it's apparently supposed to like kill you in a few minutes without any pain. And and I think Oklahoma pushed for it because that was the one where like they had a, a, an inmate strapped to the gurney for like a very long time struggling with the, uh, who, because the drugs messed up as they do. Oh, I uh, guess yeah. that was the it was a really it was a really badly botched execution, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think that's why they're trying to they're trying to do it but yeah it's also like experimenting on humans because i don't know if they've successfully carried out one so like yeah it's i mean it it's really yeah it's really dark like you say i mean honestly when when i was working at reprieve the death penalty organization and we were like just talking about all the ways in which the lethal injection was fucked up. Now, when you have those dark conversations and you're like, oh, how would you be executed? Nearly everybody was like firing squad. What? Like, it's just... The, is, that what you, is that what you thought too? Yeah, because people are just like, yeah, yeah, because it's just like there's zero chance of it botching up. <laughs> Everything else will get botched, like with firing squad, uh, like it's done in a second. And, it's, and, and I think it like illustrates something though, because like, it is the only method of execution, I think, where there's no chance of fucking up, right? Like, someone's going to shoot you and kill you. Like, it's not it's not like the lethal injection yeah. where you can inject it in the wrong vein or, you know, like the electric chair right. and stuff. But it is the one that's the most ugly. Like, it's the one that's mm-hmm. like, makes it most visible that what you're doing is killing someone. 
And I think that's right. why it's so unpopular. Like it's still used in some places, but it's considered a really politically unpopular, like really optically bad thing. And like that should say something about the death penalty. Like the easiest and most painless way to do it yeah. is like the one that shows its barbaricness and people just don't want to adopt it because they don't want to be shown for how barbaric it is. Where is that still used as a method of the death penalty? I have a couple of states. I have to look up which ones, but it's still on the books in some states. I think for a lot of states, it's like the prisoner has to actively opt in for it. Oh, which obviously no okay. one's going to sit there trying to contemplate uh, their form of death. But I think a few people have opted for it. Unless you research it and work a reprieve, then apparently. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> then you're like, yes, you research, you work a reprieve, you commit, an, you commit a death eligible crime, you get sentenced. The way forward is to ask for firing squad. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of crazy oh, to wow. be having all these conversations as well, because I feel like, at least my feeling when I was working at Reprieve and stuff and like just generally work, engaging with death penalty stuff a couple of years ago was just like, it's on its way out. Why are we even, why are we even debating this? It's getting unpopular every day. It's becoming increasingly right. clear. It's not something that people support. Globally, the number of executions is declining. Globally, every year we get more and more countries sort of rejecting the death penalty or um, narrowing its scope. And now I don't, I don't know anymore. I don't know if that's the case. Like, I just felt like there was a definitive consensus. We were moving on from the death penalty and it just doesn't feel like that anymore. Yeah. Well, Biden is anti the death penalty, which is also Mm. why I'm so offended by Trump's lame duck presidency executions because it feels like a really cruel and unthinkable fuck you like again it's like it is unthinkable that they're using people's lives as political pawns in this way but they are and actually the last time that executions happened during lame duck presidency was in the 1890s so collectively societally Trump is bringing us back morally to the 1800s that's where we're at okay (laughs) We're not even at the we're not even at the turn of the twentieth century. <laughs> Unsurprising, because it because it is kind of as a lame duck president. You, it's I guess it's a sad three months where you're, where you're facing the fact that you lost, and most people it's just, it's called a lame duck presidency because there's not much you can do, but Trump is trying to be like fuck you i'm going out guns blazing i'm oh god this is horrific everything he stands yeah. for i mean i'm not even a massive obama fan and yet the contrast between obama like pushing through right. all of these like commutations and pardons like pardoning chelsea manning in his lame duck period versus trump actively killing everyone he can like I know. the difference is just so stark and uh, and it's obama i i'm honestly so off the obama train now <laughs> like i just after seeing excerpts from his from his I know I know I get it. his yeah. book oh my god I was like oh my god how did I not realize he's just he's a misogynistic man yeah. <laughs> yeah he's very he's very charming yeah oh my god his passage about like like a socialist yeah I was like what the fuck you're just like every other ancient dude oh, oh. <laughs> I mean it just it frustrates people like him I think both Kamala and Pete's parents were Marxist I, I heard that I would be so see oh my god yeah. uh maybe I, I'll be able to 
maybe one good thing about not having kids is that I won't have to worry about my kids betraying me like that because I would, <laughs> if Pete Buttigieg was my son, I would disown oh my, my son. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't say that lightly. Oh, I don't think it's I good know. to do that, but really. <laughs> I know. I know. It's just how is your moral compass so different from your parents. mine? How is it? Like, yeah. How I I just yeah I mean I and I think you know the thing that's the most betraying about like Obama and about I guess Pete and Kamala if they understood what their parents were on about is like it's not even like you don't get it you you get it and then you right. choose to ignore it like, yeah that's I the worst like Obama I feel like Obama understands the consequences of his actions he understands the sacrifices he's making he's like an intelligent man who completely yeah. gets like the socialist argument and then he just chooses to a not get pretend not to get it. And uh, yeah, and she's just to ignore it. It's it's just, it's really depressing to see something like that. It is. And it's especially depressing that now that we've had time to reflect and really understand how his policies harmed communities of color and especially immigrant communities, mm-hmm. it would be really nice to like start a new chapter with a different kind of left progressive politics. And no, we have fucking Biden yeah. and Kamala who are talking about more money for the cops. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, cop anyway. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's the top cop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's why she wanted the job. <laughs> okay, I wanted to transition now to talking about India. Mm-hmm. So, yep, yep, yep. yeah. So the the kind of economic context is that India's economy has been hurt by COVID and the subsequent lockdowns that the country has had to undergo, and now. Uh, the government has introduced new farm regulations and there's a ton of conflicting things that are being said about these regulations. Like the Indian government claims that the regulations will allow farmers to sell directly to retailers and thus earn more because they're taking out the middleman. And then farmers worry that both prices and demand will be pushed down as giant private conglomerates buy in bulk and that they would be at the mercy of those big businesses. What is your understanding of the new regulations and the effect yep. that they might have? Yeah. So, so there are three regulations that are being considered over here, and they modify laws that India has had for several decades. You know, from its sort of socialist socialist roots that that sort of protect that protect its agricultural community. So, one of the regulations is to remove restrictions on corporate stockpiling. So under the Essential Commodities Act, there's there's just a certain amount of grain that private individual or corporation can store, and that's to prevent speculation, that's to prevent buying a large amount, uh, hoarding it, creating an artificial decrease in the market, and then increasing mm-hmm. the price and then selling it at a higher price, thereby depri- depriving people of essential commodities and also cheating the farmers out of their rightful um, profits. So there's... Um, there's that. There is um, they. It will legalize contract farming, which will allow, which happens informally to some degree, mm-hmm. but it, it sort of creates a framework to allow, like a corporate player, to hire uh, farmland and sort of make the farmers say that you know they all their crops are owed to that corporate for the next five years. They have to grow everything that corporate says, you know. So that so there's that as well. Um, and then there's what. Mm. What is is that sharecropping? I I get it's, I know it is contract farming, but I guess sharecropping as well. Okay, okay. Yeah, God, I'm so bad with agricultural. I really struggled to like research for this video. 
<laughs> it's okay, Magda. We went to law school, know, we're not farmers. Um, I actually think it is like a bit like sharecropping. I think. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you don't have like conf- you don't own yeah, the land, yeah. and so your labor goes to the yeah the corporation. Yeah. And then the third thing, which is what you mentioned, which is one of the the main things that's been sort of debated, is this. So usually for certain essential commodities, it doesn't happen with every commodity, but it happens with a lot of significant essential commodities. You the farmers don't sell directly to the retailers or the wholesalers; they sell it to these. We call them Mondays. They're like, I think the official name is like an APMC, like an Agricultural Produce Market Committee. And it's a marketing board that's established by each state government to exactly for this purpose to protect farmers from being exploited by large retailers. And so they have like a minimum support price that they pay for certain crops. Um, You know, they procure the entire they're there to procure everything that a farmer produces and give them a fair price and things like that. And so this would sort of, I think they're discussing amendments to keep the APMCs there and just also allow private players to come in, which would sort of make the APMCs obsolete anyway. But um, but yeah, I think that's the main thing. They're trying to essentially get rid of these uh, APMCs and allow like agricultural businesses to sort of take over whatever the farmers mm-hmm. are producing. And so I think those are the three things that are being proposed. I think the f- at the outset, like the most yeah. important thing about this is that almost every single farmers union in the country opposes it. So you can see that obviously by the large scale protests, but also in the process of passing this legislation, they no farmers groups were consulted. Nobody was brought to the table to assist in the drafting of this mm-hmm. law. Mm-hmm. I think they like skipped the steps for debate in uh, parliament as well because they have a comfortable majority. And so there was no uh, there was no substantive debate in Parliament as well. I think they suspended MPs who spoke out against it. So the whole way in which it was passed was very rushed. And sketchy. It's super sketchy. And they have a massive legislative mandate because they have such a majority in the Parliament that they can do that. But they passed it through in a rush. So... Mm. Yeah, it feels like at the heart of this debate is the extent to which the government is going to intervene in the market to stabilize prices for farmers, you know, Mm -hmm. subsidizing them when the crops are bad unexpectedly. Um, And it seems like the new regulations are an attempt to deregulate the market. Yeah, and I think in in a really important context to this as well is actually, um, which I... I don't think it's getting enough attention, is the Ambani and Adani uh, connection there. So um, it is getting attention in the sense that all the protesters are calling it out. All the people calling out these laws are seeing it's clearly for the benefit of these two men. But I don't think from you know my reading of the international news media and definitely not the Indian news media, this has been outlined. But basically, um, Ambani is one of the richest men in in India, probably even in the Ambani. Oh my God. I, yeah. I went to school with, uh, yeah, the Ambani's. <laughs> I went to oh, Yale with you. Them. Oh, no way. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. I heard about their mansion oh. and how people tour it. <laughs> oh my God. Did you know that? I did. Yeah. They were like uh, friends with my friends. <laughs> I oh, wasn't, I wasn't God. friends with them, but yeah, but oh. I, I would hear them like, after, like, when they would leave, I would hear them be like, oh, my God, like, do you even know how rich the Ambani's are? And it would be like, no, I really don't. <laughs> Please yeah, tell me. They're, they're, <laughs> they're uh, rich. Yeah, the, win- 
Beyonce performed at their wedding, right? They are, yeah. Uh, their net worth, I'm pretty sure Ambani is, I've, I've looked this up earlier and I found like conflicting reports, but his net worth is 77 billion. Wow. And so, yeah, exactly. So, um, <laughs> Uh, he's he's up there. I mean, he's he must be like fifth in the world or something. And then you have um, Adani as well, whose net worth, I think, is about 27, 30 billion. You know, these two men, I think, are especially close to the Modi government. And they have been interested in venturing into agribusiness for a while now. And that's why the farmers are like calling them out specifically. And one of the cool things the farmers are doing, um, Ambani's company is Reliance, which does various products like retail, telecommunications, you know, groceries already, um, marketing, all of those things. And so the farmers are actually organizing a boycott of all Reliance Mm. products, which I think cool um especially mm-hmm. because a lot of people in the country have reliance sim cards so it's like boycotting like verizon or something it's oh wow massive. they've ordered like every farmer who has a sim card for reliance geo to to swap to another sim card so it might make an impact more, both- more than 60 percent of india's population works in agriculture so a coordinated strike would yeah, for exactly. sure have an effect that is why, yeah that, that is why this is amazing i mean there are just a consistent amount of what I'm hearing from like my friends and family in India is just it's it's massive it's hard to ignore and I think you know we've had protests in India recently they all have created an impact but I think you know a lot of times they've been demonized and demonizable and I think this one I think the, the significant thing about the farmers protest is that it's becoming harder and harder for them to just demonize this as these. And they're trying, like, they're absolutely trying. They're saying, you know, you're all Pakistanis, you're all, like, Khalistanis, like, you're all, you know, you're anti-national terrorists, you're all foreign agents. This is not, you know... Th- this Outside is not- agitators. Exactly. It's like the classic outside agitators narrative. Um, Justin Trudeau su- said something in support of the uh, the striking farmers. And, like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, props. Like the one time a centrist has done something, I'm like actually admire. So I know, know. I was like, wow, okay. Hmm, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. I was like, oh, I got. I mean, props, I guess, where it's due. Even yeah. though I know it's not going to go any further than that. It's it's better than what Boris Johnson did when um, an MP asked him to, you know, assure, like, do the same thing that Trudeau did, like, just say, you know, UK supports the right to peaceful protest all over the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He clearly wasn't listening. And so he just said, oh, all matters between India and Pakistan are internal affairs and we don't comment on that. And everyone was like, wait, what? (laughs) But you were just asked about a protest. Why are you talking about Pakistan? Anyway, it was ridiculous. To to sum up, Justin Trudeau is actually a respectable centrist one day in 365. (laughs) Um, Who would have thought that that's even possible? Oh, I was just going to say, but they use the fact that Trudeau supported the protesters to say like that the protest, which is led by, you know, farmers from the poorest villages uh, to say that that was a Canadian protest and it was organized <laughs> by, it's, it's a Canadian conspiracy. So that they're trying oh. all sorts, but it's just the scale of people protesting and the nobility of like their cause, I guess, because it's like yeah. it's farmers, it's food, you know, the difficulty in isolating them and telling, saying that these group of people can be demonized is just what's making this protest really strikingly effective. Yeah, and I was really touched or was really, 
I was really moved, really saddened when I read that in 2019, more than 10,000 Indian farmers died by suicide and mm-hmm. that they're like economically, they've been struggling for years because of climate related catastrophes like droughts and floods and locusts that have caused many farmers to go into large amounts of debt. And mm-hmm. I think that that is as that's tied to as you're saying like the nobleness of the cause because it represents average people just trying to make a living and and like you said they they give us our food (laughs) yeah yeah what is what is the method of protest it seems like there's so there's a coordinated strike happening and you mentioned the boycott as well but then there's also a camp where people are occupying rights there's tens of thousands who have set up camps on the borders of the capital region Mm -hmm. yeah so i thought that was very brave because they faced police repression earlier this month where they were beaten and tear gassed also some of the farmers are elderly that that was occurring too yeah oh god not the elderly farmers what the fuck is wrong with you (laughs) I they they're doing water cannons and tear gas and water cannons in like you know thirteen degrees Celsius. Sorry, that that's I don't know. Like Is it very cold? It's sixty, but it's very cold by Indian standards. That's like like, Bavaria weather. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's cold by Indian standards where we're used to like you know scorching heat and like people don't really have have the same type of warm weather clothes you have in the states because you don't have winter for often enough to really invest in those things and so yeah and so you have poor elderly farmers facing a coronavirus risk already being blasted with water cannons and i think the delhi police were trying to get authorization from uh, the state of delhi to get stadiums to be prisons for the like they wanted authority to use the stadiums as prisons for the protesting farmers so that's kind of where the police repression is at right now and they keep blockading the borders and the farmers keep managing to get through and so it's really a remarkable feat they blocked almost all the borders and the farmers got through wow and uh, and yeah no it's a, yeah it's a combination of everything it's a strike it's a peaceful demonstration it's a camp it's um you know they're disrupting and and they're doing it in such a it's just a very organized, very like yes. somebody mm-hmm. who knows how to protest and has yes. a history of protesting and organizing <laughs> way because like the, the yeah. way they're timing the protest, the way they're coordinating it, the way that they're organizing it. I mean, it's it's just a remarkable operation. Yeah. It, Hundreds of thousands true. of farmers have blocked a lot of the national highways and rail lines and they've you know effectively stopped the movement of people and goods and they're shutting down several wholesale food markets yep and because they're they're doing this in delhi and mumbai that together that's more than 50 million people that they're affecting yeah so really badass Super badass, and I hope it goes somewhere because they're um they've had you know about eight different conversations with the government at this point. They're sort of you know they've been really relentless. They've not accepted uh, compromises that are short of what they actually want. You know they're saying they're ready to stay there for six months. They're not going to lose the energy. Like they're not going to stop until the government backs down. And this is like you know they've they've got opposition leaders to go to the president and sort of talk to him. So they've done pretty much they've explored almost every single avenue and they're stretching their 
power to the max. So it's really interesting to see how this is going to play out. It might be super depressing and we might end up seeing another loss. But honestly, with the amount of momentum and support and courage that they have, it, it might actually shift the needle in a way that a protest in India hasn't for a very long time. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important for international media to keep paying attention to this issue and following the issue so that we can support in that way. Absolutely. And yeah. um, I don't know how many um, American senators have spoken out about it, but it might be worth... Um, I, I know the whole like uh, right-tier senator thing is, is difficult, you know, and sometimes it's a lot of liberal nonsense, but um, it might be something worth doing just because the more India's... I, I think the thing that a lot of Indians are feeling now, um, the ones on the left, is, is that our country needs to be called out and it needs to get international shame in order for mm-hmm. um, in order for the needle to move at all. And so, you know, a lot of people have been desperate to sort of get international leaders to support and to see what's really happening at home and like support people who are protesting and their rights because they're being eroded in sort of a really unprecedented, um, alarming fashion. Yeah. And so and just, Stadiums as what, prisons? What? Yeah. It's and they did this during the CAA and our mm. sorry um, during the CAA thank you um, CAA NRC protests as well. Delhi's a whole other can of worms as well. The police is controlled by the federal government who hates our state government, and so it's a shit show in Delhi constantly. I think our chief minister is like the mayor or something or like the governor, I guess, is under house arrest now. So Delhi's doing Why? great because he's he's joining the farmers' protests. Because oh. he's from a party that's not, um, he's from a party that's that's um, opposed to the center. So, wait, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, wow. but, but he wasn't, um, it's, it's really good. I mean, he has his own problems, but it is good, but it is, the, it makes Delhi a constant battlefield because half the resources are controlled by the center because it's the capital and half the resources mm. are controlled by the state government and so we're, mm. and the police is not controlled by the state government. So mm. we're kind of in a constant turmoil in Delhi. It's mm. great. And, yeah, it uh, seems like a really good like federalism hypo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the whole country, I think, is a federalism hypo right now because because that that's what the Modi government is doing. They're trying to erase all. It's kind of ironic. Um, it's different from the states because they're trying to yeah. erase governments having autonomy, and state governments are often where we have more diversity of parties and people who can challenge the Modi's party, the BJP. Right. So the government has signaled that it's open to reform. And I understand this is a huge question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. (laughs) How would you fix this? How would you fix this regulation? I think what the farmers are asking for, and I think if I understand the demands correctly, is that so the thing is farming in India does need reform, right? Like you said, I think 40 to 60 percent of the country are involved in farming, but it contributes only like 16% 16% of the GDP. So it's clear that farmers aren't getting their fair share. Yeah. yeah, they're not getting their fair share. They're being, you know, as you you said, um, there's so many farmer suicides. It has the highest rate of farmer suicides in the world. Farmers are uh, are extremely systemically deprived in the country. And the current system isn't working. Like, I think that's sort of a consensus. Um, these state-owned boards where you're supposed to get a fair price, a lot of them don't give you a fair price. A lot of them are corrupt. A lot of them operate as cartels. So it, it, it's really clear that they're not getting their fair share. But the answer isn't to scrap them away and then throw the farmers to the wolves. The answer, I think, is to... So I think what the farmers are saying and what the opposition parties who support the farmers are saying is that 
take these pills off the table. Like they're not going mm-hmm. to do anything except make a bad situation worse. Um, and then start from the scratch if you really want to get serious about agricultural reform. And we can talk about ways in which we can make that happen. So I think, you know, and I was thinking of an analogy to how the NHS is the National Health Service in the UK works, which is over the past, it's a class, it's actually a very classic trick that is used by neoliberal governments everywhere is that you take a perfectly functional socialistic system, you underfund it and underregulate it to the point where it is useless and corrupt and doesn't do its job properly. Um, I'm not saying that about the NHS, by the way. The NHS is brilliant. I love the NHS. Um, but it is like... <laughs> I know. It's like, is, wait, I, I heard good things about the no, NHS. It's, it's good. No, but it is, it is crumbling. Like it is, you know, there's a lot of points in which the NHS is just overwhelmed, overcapacity, underfunded, uh, unable to do its job. And it's the same with, you know, so many institutions that are underfunded and underregulated. And then right. you... Then you point at them and you say, look, it's clearly not working when it's run by the government. Let's privatize it, which right. is what the argument they're trying to make with the NHS. And, and so it's the same argument here. They're not regulating these these mundies. They're not creating a structure where they're ensuring the farmers get a fair price. They're not they're not giving these farmers a legal recourse to enforce their right to fair prices. They're not they're mishandling it at every step along the way and they're not rooting out corruption. And so I think what ends up happening is um, is then it's a broken system. And so the most important thing to do is to actually reinforce the system that you have instead right. of instead of trying to create this new system. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, honestly, just after being an abolitionist and focusing so much on government harm and also studying the ways in which in the U.S. the welfare state and so many social services are tied up in criminalization, it's mm-hmm. left me in a place where I'm like, what is the role of government? I mean, this this was like our whole anarchism episode, yeah. which y'all should go <laughs> listen to, become a Lit Review patron. <laughs> but yeah, I just, the, those questions are just always looming in my mind. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and it's, it's. I think as an anarchist, it's a tough question because in this case, I, I think know. we do need more government. It's like, <laughs> I mean, I guess the primary en- enemy is corporations and fascist governments. And then, uh, yeah. and then we can yeah. start having the luxury of arguing about whether a socialistic government is better or having something completely decentralized and more anarchic is better. But let's get to the place where we're, oh, we're allowed <laughs> to make those, have those debates first. Right. Well, Magda, those are all the questions that I wanted to ask you. And I've had you here for around an hour-ish. I'll let you enjoy the rest of your whiskey. And thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always been a, such a pleasure. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.